Welcome to Deckert's Committed Capital, where PE leaders open their playbooks to discuss today's PE trends. I'm Chris Field, uh, co-head of Deckert's private equity practice, and I'm based in our London office. I'm joined today by an absolutely stellar group of industry practitioners for what should be a very interesting discussion. Uh, May I ask each of you to briefly introduce yourselves? Hello, I'm Anna Siakotos. I'm Deputy General Counsel at Cerberus Capital Management based in London. And Cerberus is a global leader in alternative investing across private equity, credit, real estate, and non-performing loan platforms with over $45 billion of assets under management. Hi, my name is Emilio Pedroni. I'm a Managing Director at First Atlantic Capital based in New York. Uh, First Atlantic is uh, a middle market private equity group. Uh, We've been around for over 30 years and our typical focus uh, is uh, in uh, uh, for control uh, buyouts. Hi, my name is Jazz Kara. I'm a Senior Managing Director and Partner at Blackstone within our Tactical Opportunities business. I'm located uh, in New York City. And uh, Blackstone is a global alternative asset manager with $565 billion of AUM. Thank you, everyone, for joining me. So today's topic is all about getting deals done in the current environment. We're going to start our discussion with the what. What types of deals were you doing and what types are you doing now? And, and then we'll move from the what to the how. How are you actually getting the deals done? Diligence, deal terms, financing, and then time permitting, we'll look at some emerging trends. So my first question, and if I could start with you, Jazz, is what types of deal were you focused on in the first half of the year? And how's that changed compared with last year? Or put differently, how did you see the deal landscape as you came into 2020? And how's that changed since the start of the pandemic? Chris, I think when when the pandemic first hit, I think it's fair to say that we largely locked down to focus on our portfolio companies. And I think we were very uncertain as to how this would emerge. And so the initial focus was entirely on plugging up gaps in our capital structures, uh, ensuring there was adequate liquidity and making some of the difficult decisions that came with furloughs or shutdowns of various different operations. Within several weeks that evolved and the opportunity set shifted uh, on the offensive side uh, to look at new deals, mostly for us around two categories. One were rescue financings of good businesses that we had known uh, pre-crisis and so were able to move fast because we either had familiarity with the company or or management in many cases uh, to get comfort with doing a deal remotely. Or second, uh, there were a number of deals in the asset space, uh, reperforming loans, whole loan mortgages, et cetera, uh, that uh, were priced at pretty attractive levels for us to move in on. Since then, as the pandemic has has evolved and, and central banks have put in some unprecedented measures in terms of liquidity, traditional deal making for us has come back to the fore. And many of the opportunities to do control deals or deals that we you know, were, were newly introduced to are back as a part of our pipeline um, and is where our team is spending time on now. Got it. Got it. So that's so a real lock from looking after the existing portfolio 
through to looking for opportunities to then emerging into not not quite business as usual, but but far closer to the way it was. And and Emilio, has that been your experience as well, or, or did you experience something different? No, I I agree with what uh, Yasa has just said uh, that. Uh, there was, at least uh, in North America, uh, this uh, uh, assessment uh, as uh, soon as the lockdown started uh, uh, in mid-March, uh, first of all, in uh, looking at how your portfolio companies were going to weather the storm, and then uh, has uh, slowly shifted into uh, looking at add-ons to existing uh, platforms and, uh, and then to new platforms. I think that uh, if I had to kind of... Uh, Summarizing you know, how I'm thinking about uh, getting deals done uh, in uh, this market uh, environment mm-hmm. is uh, stick to what you know, which I think what Yas was also referencing before. There's still uh, a imperfect uh, uh, due diligence uh, by the fact that traveling uh, is uh, very limited. And so whether you're looking at platforms or you're looking at uh, uh, bolt-ons, I think that relying on past experience is uh, the way to go. First of all, you can better assess uh, what has been the impact of COVID-19 to the company you're looking to acquire, especially if it is a one-time positive or negative, or if it is structural to the company. Um, mm-hmm. For the purpose of financing, uh, I think that obviously add-ons uh, have the benefit of having lenders in place. Uh, so you're kind of halfway there. Uh, although it comes more expensive. And you still actually, you know, in the case of Anos, probably have a, a faster uh, value creation so you can confirm whether your initial hypothesis on the investment uh, is uh, true. Got it, got it. And an interesting stat here that, that you're talking quite a bit about add-ons. Interestingly, PitchBook was saying that um, 61% of all European PE deals in the first half of the year were, they were using the phrase bolt-ons, add-ons, which, which is apparently a record. And I'm guessing a lot of it was, was for the reasons you were saying. It's interesting to see that unfold. And, and so, Anna, um, you're, you're based in London. What, what was your team seeing? Was your experience similar as well, or, or how were you seeing things? Uh, very similar. Definitely the first uh, month or two or three, to be honest, days and nights kind of blurred for the first couple of months of lockdown. Mm-hmm. It was all about how is each portfolio company weathering the storm? What are we going to do? But, you know, now we are seeing more normal pipeline, particularly in the U.S. and, of course, a few bolt-ons. And also Cerberus exited a couple of investments in this time. So we've been busy all along. Got it. Some processes actually got put on hold straight away by the sellers. Mm-hmm. And now they're coming back uh, alive pretty much on the same terms, perhaps with a small discount, but largely unaltered by the pandemic. Do you think, um, certainly in Europe, there tends to be somewhat of a lull in, in a typical year, and this is definitely not a typical year, but there tends to be that lull during August, and then things tend to pick up into September and going into the rest of the year. Do, do you think there's an element of that, that, that transactions that were looking to happen pre-pandemic are coming back and being launched into the final, what it would be, quarter of the year? To be honest, I haven't experienced the summer lull at Cerberus, but these <laughs> okay, good things thing. in Europe are a little bit slower. Although things in uh, New York are very busy at the moment. I don't know if that's your experience as well, Emilio and Jess. 
yes, uh, I, I think that we're definitely seeing a pickup. Uh, typically, there is this uh, last couple of weeks in August uh, where things slow down. Uh, the summer is definitely, you know, uh, like any other part of the year, you know, under obviously the COVID restrictions. Yeah. I think our, our teams have discovered that uh, while there are many blessings of working from home, including getting the chance to see your kids with more frequency, it mm-hmm. sometimes doesn't feel like we're working from home, but we are instead living at work. And so I think managing that balance has been a, a challenge for all of us uh, during this time. <laughs> um, and I, I agree completely with Anna and Emilio, which is August is, is, is certainly not feeling like August uh, here in New York uh, and for many of my colleagues in Europe as well. It's interesting. So I'd like to shift across a little bit from the what to the how, which I think is really the meat of this discussion, and maybe start with deal terms. Uh, so, so pre-pandemic, when we came into the start of the year, it was still very much a seller-friendly market. You know, there were walk-away deals, significant RTFs, at least for US-style deals, minimal conditionality, hello high water clauses. Seller liabilities for any reps and warranties were fully backed out by buy-side insurance at the buyer's expense. Uh, if you're in Europe, locked box deals almost entirely on, on auction processes or, or on US-style price adjustments capped with only an adjustment escrow. My sense is that's beginning to change. Anna, if I could start with you, what, what are the deal terms that you've seen that are emerging out of the pandemic? Well, you have to differentiate here between what kind of target are you selling. A distressed Mm -hmm. sale will be a distressed sale. And uh, a business uh, that has been buoyed by the pandemic will dictate pretty much the same seller-friendly terms that we could see before. Uh, For the large number of businesses in between, I think the terms are going to slightly shift But my view of it is that the sellers haven't gotten the memo yet that the seller-friendly terms do not any longer apply. I think the sellers that are putting their auctions back online are expecting the vast majority of the seller-friendly terms they were looking to before the pandemic. Where things are being more heatedly negotiated are the reps and warranties to cover any gaps or any kind of gray areas which may not be transparent via Zoom and uh, particularly the uh, interim conduct provisions. Because, you know, the sellers want a blanket carve-out for anything to do with the pandemic, but the buyers obviously want control. I think the WNI kind of remains the gray horse lurking around. I don't think we know mm-hmm. fully what they will or will not uh, support. That's a really interesting observation as to there's always going to be a lag time to see as claims start coming through that are backed out by rep and warranty insurance during this pandemic period, the, the level of coverage that will actually materialize? It's a really interesting point. And, and Emilio, from your perspective, are, are you seeing a similar thing in terms of deal terms or, or what are you seeing in the States? I would say that the deals that I've experienced, uh, because we were not investing in distressed assets, uh, mm-hmm. I would say that actually a key differentiating factor to win uh, would be to hold as much as possible to terms uh, pre-pandemic. 
And this, again, is for quality assets. Now, the, the question as we move into COVID becoming the new norm for the next, uh, let's say, 12 months is uh, uh, I agree with Anna that uh, sellers have not uh, received uh, yet the memo uh, that they need to adjust. But on the other hand, uh, there is tremendous amount of capital that has been sitting on the sideline and extremely hungry to get deals done. And so how the two will kind of balance themselves out, I think, is a little bit still kind of where we're now going to be in the coming months. It's interesting. I think quite a few of you have touched on a point which actually came up as an observation on, on our previous podcast, which is at the end of an expansionary cycle, pre the pandemic, buyers are prepared to pay up. That's no longer the case. But conversely, sellers are still expecting them to pay up. That divide has absolutely emerged. And Jazz, could, could I ask a slightly different question for you, which is where do you see this going? What are some of the deal terms that you expect will increasingly become a fixture in the market as we move into this overused expression, the new normal? What do you see evolving? Chris, I was struggling on this one and thinking about it uh, after we talked about it a few days ago. Um, I think the challenge with the new normal is it's probably more like back to the future than the new mm-hmm. normal. And so I, I, I feel like we we see many of the market participants' behaviors really being more in line with just sort of reverting back to pre-COVID, pre-pandemic perspectives on pricing, on reps and warranties, on terms, et cetera. Um, and to Emilio's point, right now, part of the challenge is there is a tale of two cities where if you are a seller in the market and you actually go and you say to your investment committee, I want to sell, and the investment committee says that's a reasonable thing to do, chances are that is probably a high quality asset that has been not impacted at all and, and maybe even advantaged by COVID. And for those assets, there is a feeding frenzy of activity to go after that. Uh, on the other hand, if you've been impacted by COVID or, or, or had some challenges in cash flow, the likelihood of the deal actually going into the market is low. And we haven't seen as many that have played out that way. So as those assets begin to come to market, either through the end of 2020 or early 2021, I think those will be the ones to watch for to the extent there is a new normal that emerges. Got it. Got it. So the bulk of assets where sellers are looking to wait out to be able to demonstrate some sort of recovery track record coming out of the pandemic before they look to sell? Or, or I suppose, alternatively, if they can convince a buyer to pay, what, what do they call it? An EBIT-DAC multiple. Just disregard the pandemic's effect. Yeah. I think that's um, right. A new acronym. There we go. So let's talk a little bit more about how deals are getting done practically. Um, most geographies have at least partially lifted their lockdowns. But we still have travel restrictions. We still have social distancing in place. So how have you adapted your approach to deal diligence in this environment? And, and operationally, how do you integrate a new acquisition when you literally cannot travel to the location or socialize with the new management team? And does social distancing impact your financing and ability to raise finance? Uh, Emilio, could I start with you on that one? Sure. Um, I would say, you know, with uh, kind of the financing, which is the easy answer, which is, in short, I would say no. I mean, the social distancing and COVID has impacted uh, as far as uh, how do you diligence. Obviously, mm-hmm. financing has been impacted by COVID, but not necessarily because they cannot travel. I mean, now financing is already being conducted remotely. 
now how to do due diligence and integrate companies. Uh, uh, although there is some traveling, I think there is still a significant uh, lockdown just as far as, uh, uh, for instance, uh, quarantines, uh, where you know, if you are from New York, uh, where many of us are, you just cannot uh, travel outside of New York before uh, you know, being quarantined when you come back. Uh, and there are hot spots around the country still. Uh, Canada is still closed. You have to quarantine yourself when going there, coming back. So traveling is, is, is the main issue. Um, we've been all relying on uh, these uh, video conferences, which I think have, you know, uh, I've learned a lot of technology uh, in the last few months just in getting all these different platforms to work uh, for a starter. But they do work. So also our advisors have been uh, uh, using these uh, video platforms uh, for conducting also financial due diligence. Um, the challenge uh, is where you need to then physically be present, uh, first of all, to meet the management team. And uh, what uh, we have been able to do is uh, uh, to obviously rely, again, on the video platform also to socialize. Yeah. You need to get to know the people who are running the company that you're acquiring. And uh, uh, for now, you have to kind of, uh, you know, have, uh, you know, a gut feeling from uh, uh, conversations still over Zoom or so. Now, we also have been relying on local uh, talent that uh, have uh, less restrictions in hiring uh, advisors that are physically present in a certain uh, location. And this has been the case both uh, within the U.S. and also in Canada, where I think the advisors have also come up with the solution where where there, there needs to be a physical presence. Uh, they have uh, figured out some local uh, partner that they can uh, partly outsource this function. And then uh, as far as on the integration side, uh, again, you rely on uh, uh, maybe hiring local talent. You may have uh, someone that uh, you hire for the specific purpose of uh, uh, helping uh, through the integration. The hope, obviously, eventually is to uh, being able to be physically present uh, uh, there. But for the time being, uh, you kind of rely as much as possible on uh, the people that uh, come with the company or hiring also someone uh, locally. Got it. And, and Chaz, is this less of an issue for you with, with offices in multiple geographies that you hopefully always have somebody on the ground for any particular deal? Or have you also had to juggle not being there in person? We certainly benefit from having that global network and, and local offices in every key market that we do business in. Um, but to be candid, I think we face many of the same issues Emilio has, which is, Understanding and having a connection with the management team, the CEO, really understanding the alignment is very tough. It's very tough to do in general, let alone tough to do over Zoom. Uh, so I think it's an added hurdle and barrier. And candidly, most of our transactions during COVID, and even now, the ones that we've progressed at a very far level, are with teams or companies that we have known for some significant amount of time. Uh, we're actually right now in the inflection point where several of the new conversations are are with deals and, and management teams that we haven't spent significant time with. Uh, and so that'll be interesting. I, I will mm -hmm. say I had my first management meeting uh, last week on Sunday with a CEO in person. 
socially distanced with a mask. And I will tell you that a conversation with a mask six feet apart, you're probably better off on Zoom because I, I probably understood every third word that was coming out. So uh, <laughs> something to think as we continue to evolve our strategies here. And, and, and they talk about a lot, of, a lot of what you're picking up, a lot of the cues you're picking up are subconscious and you do it off the facial expression. And if three quarters of the face is hidden, it's very difficult to pick that up. Anna, from your perspective, are you seeing a similar thing or how, how are you approaching the physical separation when it comes to, I guess, diligence in particular? Uh, well, we also leverage on the multiple offices and the many markets where we do business. Where we don't have offices, we try to leverage on our network of consultants who we know very well over the years. Where we don't have offices or consultants, which is becoming a much smaller universe, we basically try to rely on people that we know uh, from previous relationships. So uh, going back to what Emilio said at the very start of this discussion, stick to what you know, I would expand that to say stick to who you know. And what you can't see on Zoom, what you can't do on video, we try to entrust to people that we've known over time that basically their eyes can be our eyes. And some of the markets in Europe are already open and people can meet there. It's just that we can't go. So we try to leverage a little bit on that. Got it. So just moving the conversation slightly, I'd like to talk very briefly about exits. Um, and I have an interesting stat here uh, from, from PitchBook, which says that apparently they're running at their lowest level in six years. Uh, in some ways, that's not surprising. We touched on that earlier. I, I guess conversely, and this is more focused on the U.S., there, there is a narrative that you want to be selling now before any anticipated tax creases if there's a change in the White House. So let's just talk about how you're approaching exits generally. And, and maybe, Anna, I should start with you for this question. How, how are you thinking about exits at the moment? Well, I think the exit before changes in White House is an urban myth. Uh, I don't know who created that, but somebody who wants to bolster activity in this uncertain time. <laughs> Even if there is a change in White House, it's going to take a few months to get the tax reform uh, enacted. And mm -hmm. who on this call can tell me what the world will look like in 12 months' time? I would like to know that myself. So... Basically, there are just three groups of targets here. The targets that are really flying in the pandemic, the targets that are really distressed, and everything in between. And because everything in between constitutes the largest segment of the market, then uh, unless you have to sell or unless you think that it has done really well and you can demonstrate that to a seller, then probably you will hold off Got putting it. it on the market at the moment. Got it. One other topic I think it would be good to just uh, wrap up on, which is distressed investing um, and accepting China. With almost all the major economies now in recession, uh, this is clearly the time to be contemplating distressed investing. But interestingly, and, and I'm looking at this from a European perspective, actual bankruptcies in Europe in the first half of the year were lower than in the corresponding period, the first half of 2019. And I'm guessing part of that is probably due to the unprecedented government support that's been provided in response to the pandemic. We, I know Jazz touched on that earlier, um, but which itself is likely to taper off through the rest of this year. 
So, Jazz, I know your team has the ability to invest anywhere up and down the capital stack. Um, so are you looking at distressed investments? How are you thinking about them? Is, is that an important part of the mix for you? We, we are, Chris. And I think um, that flexibility, especially right now, has proved to be an incredible asset because uh, the desire of someone to sell control of a really great business at a good price uh, is really tough right now. I mean, if, if, mm-hmm. As Anna mentioned, if you are in that position, you're waiting out for a really great price or you're just not selling. And so we have found the ability to have multiple conversations offering different structures, different methods of investing, different ways to partner. It doesn't mean we win more deals. It just means we have more shots on goal right now. Um, So that's been helpful. Specifically, in terms of what we've been seeing, um, I think it falls into two categories, actually. One is, as Anna mentioned, um, there are companies that are good companies but have a cash flow gap that emerged from COVID. And usually when people go into something like this, they, they, unless they, they really haven't managed their balance sheet too thoughtfully, they have some amount of cash or liquidity. And we found that as you talk to many of our peers and, and partners and even our own portfolio companies, at least three months and more like six months worth of liquidity. And everyone was kind of waiting to see how the quarantine and a second phase or a second phase of lockdowns would evolve uh, before they have conversations about raising additional liquidity above and beyond that. We're now approaching that point where we're having meaningful conversations with companies that are good businesses, but basically saw a three to six month demand shock with anywhere from zero revenues to 50% of normal revenues. And the opportunity to talk about capital investments, either structured equity or structured debt to enable them to see it through through 2022, 2021 uh, is, is a big part of that. The second category are companies that are good businesses with adequate liquidity, but from a sponsor perspective or a management or founder perspective, 2020 is a lost year and they want to find ways to make that up. And that either will happen through putting the gas on acquisitions or uh, something more aggressive from a capital plan in order to generate the return that will be lost just by definition, having a year less of cash flow, an extra year of duration, et cetera. And those are fun conversations. I wouldn't call them distressed, but those are interesting conversations because they're ways to catalyze more value and take advantage of a difficult landscape to buy things to make the business collectively better. And so that's another type of investment or you know, theme that we've been focused on. Huh. Wow. wow. You, you, you know, there's, there's still so much more to discuss, but I'm conscious our time is coming to a close. Um, so actually, I'd like to take this opportunity to thank all three of you for sharing your precious time and your insights uh, with me. It's been truly informative. And thank you also to our listeners. Um, if you'd like to hear more, You can find all of our podcasts on our website, which is at www.decit.com, as well as on Apple Podcasts and on Spotify Podcasts. So if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please subscribe to our channel. And and we're going to be covering lots more in the coming months. And if you have any thoughts or suggestions, please reach out to any of us at Decit. We'd love to hear from you. So stay safe and healthy, everyone. Thank you.